If you were with us last week, you heard that we are uh, entering a series during uh, the season of Lent where we'll be talking about what a wretched wreck you all are and how you will die. That's what it's called, the series. So it's not as quippy as Eric's typical titles. No, we, uh, the season of Lent is, is the season leading up to Easter where the Holy Spirit has led the church over hundreds and hundreds of years to believe that it's a really good idea to figure out just how bad we are so that we can see again um, how good the good news is. Um, that is a major part of what we do in Lent. And so as such, we'll be walking through the penitential psalms, which are psalms, as you'll see today, that, that focus on personal confession and the receiving of forgiveness um, by our God. So last week we did Psalm 6, this week Psalm 32 that Becky just read. When um, You wouldn't know it if you were to walk out to the parking lot with me, uh, but I used to be like a manly man. I used to drive a truck, which was way better uh, in terms of masculinity than what I drive now, which is a Maxbox car. It's a Prius. Um, I, think there's, I think there's a fixation on cars around here because I get a lot of comments on that. Uh, but I think that's your problem and not mine. You may need to bring that one to Jesus. But I used to drive this little truck, and so as such, you know, I'd, I'd use it for projects around the house and, um, and, and helping out friends and stuff. And this one project that I had, uh, you know, was really useful for throwing junk into the back of it. Uh, this one project, I had to jackhammer up a bunch of uh, sidewalk in my front lawn. Um, so I promptly did that, got it all out in the lawn, threw my back out, moving the jackhammer for the last time, and then loaded it all like, like a cripple you know, into the back of my truck. And so where do you take like a whole truck load of, uh, you know, concrete that's all busted up? Well, it happened that near, uh, near our house was this old quarry that they had, uh, you know, Philadelphia is an old area. They had, they had been uh, mining that quarry for generations and uh, building some beautiful gigantic stone houses and the like in the area. <clears throat> but this quarry was, uh, I mean, picture a mall inverted and sunk into the ground so it was like multi-leveled it was really far reaching but you could go to this this quarry this quarry they were ready to to uh, be done with it but they, i guess they just didn't want to leave a gigantic hole in the earth and so they were filling it back in they were they were ready to start that process so what you could do is take a load of anything like that dirt or bricks or, or um what i had concrete and and drive it in there and you drive you know, up to the entrance, they'd let you in. You drive down one level, it's as big as a football field, and then you find the ramp to go down to the next level. And that's, again, twice as big, and then the third level. And, it's, and, and you're finally kind of at the bottom, and if you looked up, it's like literally 100 feet above you is the ground level, and you're down in this gigantic pit. And they're like, okay, help us fill this thing in. Empty the back of your truck. And I'm like throwing out my little stones. Like, and, and I looked around, I was like, this, this is going nowhere. How are you? This is not going to work, guys. Um, my little truck was not going to was not going to pull this job off, right? But then, I mean, to top it off, I drive out of there, and you had to pay on your way out for the privilege, which was which was like insult to injury. If we are to believe what Scripture says about sin, if we're to believe it, 
then it is much like that picture of a gigantic quarry, a gigantic hole um, that, that must be filled. That's the picture of sin, but the way that you and I generally deal with it is bringing our little trucks full of pebbles to try and fill it in stone by stone. And it's just not working. It just doesn't work. You see, Scripture is calling us, and this passage is calling us, to call sin, sin. It's a clever, another clever wording that Eric wrote recently for me. Sin is sin. That's the first point. The second point, but forgiveness is bigger. And the third point is, blessedness is the outcome. So, so sin is sin. Sin is this unfillable quarry, according to Scripture, according to what our God wants us to know. Sin is this unfillable quarry. But here's the, the problem. I don't think, if we look at ourselves, if we take honest assessment, that any of us really believes in sin. We don't actually believe that that's a thing. Let me tell you what I mean. The liberal among us, or the irreligious people would say, sin, that's an arcane category. It's, you don't need that anymore. You know, we don't, that's not, there's no such thing, there is no whole. Sin is just damaging for, it's damaging to your self-esteem to call it sin. I mean, that's, that's not what we need to be doing. No belief in that category or, the, or the, the existence of such a thing. But let me ask you, I think the question needs to be asked, if it's bad for your self-esteem, why does your self-esteem need so much help? Why is your esteemer in such bad shape? Right? If sin doesn't exist, then something's going after it. You know, Tim Keller on this topic says that, that, uh, that your esteemer, your ego, whatever you want to call it, is, is much like your body. That you don't actually pay any attention to it unless it's broken. You don't go around saying, man, I'm so happy that my elbow works perfectly that is wonderful news. Did you, have you checked this thing out? Wonder of wonders. You don't, you don't really care to do that until you get tennis elbow. And then you, every time you shake somebody's hand, you recognize, every time you lift something, you're, you're in pain. You're recognizing something is broken here. You're recognizing something's wrong. That's when it cries out for attention, when something is wrong. And the same thing goes with our souls. When everything is going right, they don't demand attention. But the fact that we have these noisy egos, this noisy demand for affirmation and affection and attention, it just shows us that something is wrong with them. So saying, sin's not a category, that may damage my ego, that may damage myself. It's not working. Like, abandon that one. That strategy is failing. It doesn't work. You see, we all know that there is something we all know that there's something wrong. Scripture tells us that, uh, that everybody has, this, has the knowledge of God's eternal power. We have a knowledge of God. But just because we've chosen to ignore him doesn't mean that knowledge of him and the guilt over sin goes away. Sin doesn't work if you just try to ignore it and act like it doesn't exist. But... 
It's not only the irreligious who don't believe in sin. The religious don't either. Religious people tend to think of sin and immorality as equated. Or, more complicated, sin and willful moral disobedience. That's what sin is. That's all that sin is. That's only what it is. Willful moral disobedience. If we put it in that category, then it feels okay to call other people sinners. What we mean is that they're just less moral than us. If sin is just morality, then we are shrinking that problem to something that we can control. We're shrinking it to something that we could control. Let me tell you this, you religious people, and I'm speaking to myself too. This Having a category of sin that is separate, that is akin to a gigantic hole that you are responsible for but can never fix. Um, if you started calling sin, sin in your life, you'd be a lot happier. You'd get to relax every once in a while. Take a day off. You're not going to fill that sucker in. I'm not saying don't take your sin and morality lightly. I'm saying the pressure to fix the problem does not rest wholly on your shoulders. Nor does it rest wholly on your neighbor's shoulders when they're struggling, when something is going wrong in their life, when they can't seem to get their marriage worked out. It's not because they haven't tried hard enough, usually. That's not the answer. There's this thing called sin. This thing called sin. Biblically speaking, when we call our actions and our attitudes and our words sin, we're admitting that this giant hole exists that must be filled in. It's a hole whose very existence not only keeps us from God and that we can't cross it like the traditional kind of chasm between God and man, it keeps us from him, but it's also a violation against him. So the whole's existence, the existence of that quarry, is a violation of what God loves and what he stands for. It causes righteous anger and even pain. And it must be solved. So if sin is that big, if it's necessary to acknowledge that it exists, we have to say it exists, but it's also so far out of our control, then we have got our only recourses to cast ourselves on this forgiveness offered here. So sin is sin, but forgiveness is so much bigger if we acknowledge that, if we acknowledge how big sin is. This, uh, this passage uses a number of words to talk about forgiveness and what is accomplished in it. I'm just going to choose two of them. The first one is covering. Verses 1 and 5 both use that word, but, the, but it, uh, it's used very differently. In verse 1, it says, Blessed is the man whose sin is covered by the Lord. In verse 5, uh, um, it talks about the, uh, the man who tries to cover his own sin. So covering my own sin, covering up that I have this problem, that I, that I, uh, that I have this, this thing that's too big for me, uh, is, is condemned. In, in scripture, it's not it's not a solution. 
It's like, you know Jason Bourne, right? Jason Bourne, the Bourne Ultimatum, all that stuff. I love those kind of movies. And those ones are good too. He's like, so Jason Bourne is this, like, you know, everybody in the whole world is looking for him, trying to kill him, but he can stay hidden all the time. And he's like super good looking and charming and always, uh, you know, in really good physical shape. And, you know, he always gets the girl, but he's always, he's in hiding, but it works because he's Jason Bourne and nobody can catch Jason Bourne. But, you know, when we try to cover our sins, we're kind of like the paunchy, sweaty, out of breath Jason Bourne. Like, (laughs) It's not working for you. It's not, you're not getting the girl. You're, gonna, you're getting found out all the time. Our covering of our sin is not working. We're the out-of-breath Jason Bourne, like sweating on the people around us and trying to convince them that everything is just fine. Our covering doesn't work. Our covering doesn't work. But God's covering is very different than that. When it says that God covers our sin, the picture is not that that he, like, um, that he puts it in this box and moves it into this category of denial, and I'll deal with that later, or, that, or, or, or even that that doesn't really matter. He's not just moving it out of sight and out of mind. It's much more, it's much more like, um, like what happens when you cover a grease fire. When I was in college, um, I was in a, a, as a senior... I had to cook for myself for the first time, which did not go well. I was not on the meal plan any longer. And I started a grease fire in our kitchen. I had to get the extinguisher out, and you know, and uh, the whole building, the whole apartment building had to empty. And every, it, was, it was, no, it was an apartment building of freshmen. And so I was just happened to be living there, and they're all like, who did that? What's stupid? And it was the big senior over here who had, like, emptied the entire building on a cold evening. It was terrible. But a grease fire, is, it, will, it will destroy a bunch of stuff. It's hard to put out. Who thinks you put water on a grease fire? You'll be laughed at and scorned, but you may raise your hand if you think so. No, you don't, right? You don't put it. <clears throat> what you do to a grease fire is you have to smother it. You've got to cover it. What God does to our sin when he covers it is that he strangles it. He strangles out the oxygen. He covers it so that the, so that the fire goes out. It, doesn't, it's as, 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 it is as if it never existed. That's what, we're, that's what this means when it says he covers it. It's like he fills in that quarry, levels it off, and it never existed. He covers it. We can't cover it. It's too big. The second word that... Um, among the many in this passage, which are worthy of meditation, if you want to just walk through the passage and look at the different words the psalmist used. second one I'm going to um, bring up is, is deliverance. It's deliverance. That's in verse 7. He sa- it says, He surrounds us with shouts of deliverance. Uh, last year, 2013, the uh, Oscar winner for Best Film was 12 Years a Slave. Um, is the story of a man named Solomon Northup, who was a black man who lived in, uh, up near New York, and he had a, a career as a musician, he had a family, complete legal status, there was nothing wrong, everything was going fine, but, um, but he got tricked, and he got duped, and he, and he, and he got um, kidnapped, and taken, uh, stripped of his identity, taken south and sold into slavery. 
So you have this man who is living a life that doesn't belong to him. And you can see as the movie progresses, the, just the, the anguish on his face that he is living this life that is not, it's not fair, it's not right. Um, he tells people, oh, look, I don't belong here. I'm not a slave. They say, well, produce your papers and you'll be free to go. And of course he can't. His identity has been taken. All, legal, all legality has been, um, you know, shoved under the carpet. And here he is in this hopeless situation. Hopeless situation. Dying to be rid of this um, legal status of slave. And the more he talks about it, the more he tries to get out of it, the, the more masters that he's sold to and the harsher they become and the worse the situation gets. The more he tries to assert who he thinks he is, the worse his situation gets. You know, that's the picture that Scripture most often uses for sin. Scripture does talk about sin as willful moral disobedience, right? I hit my brother. That's a sin. It talks about that. But most often when the Scriptures talk about sin and our forgiveness and our deliverance from sin, it uses the picture of slavery, namely of God's people being enslaved in Egypt and God by his mighty hand rescuing them out of a hopeless and desperate situation. That's the picture it gives us. That's that's what is conjured up in this word deliverance. It's a slavery. It's a slavery word, delivered out of slavery. When Solomon is there working on his, uh, working in this plantation, and you see him just out in the fields. One moment he is a nobody slave, beaten and forgotten and hated and, and despised. And he is out in the field working. And then the next moment you see a carriage ride up with his friends, bearing his legal papers, and in an instant his identity has changed, his legal status has changed, and he is rescued, he is delivered out of that slavery back into the life that he had lived previous. He's reunited with his family And one instant, that owner has no control over him anymore. He is not beholden to follow one more order. He's been delivered. That's the picture that we get here. That forgiveness is deliverance. Deliverance out of slavery Because sin is too big for you. You can't handle it by ignoring it. You can't handle it by calling it just immorality that I can fix by new strategies or new relationships or a new job. It's bigger than you. But God brings deliverance. Sin is sin and forgiveness is bigger. The result is blessedness. It says blessed is the one who is forgiven. Blessedness is just firm happiness. It's a good way to to think about that. Happiness that's not easily shaken. So why don't you, if if the outcome of this is blessedness, if it says the one who is honest with the Lord, 1 John says if you confess your sins, he'll forgive you, but if you deny your sins, you're calling God a liar. You're deceiving yourself. Why would we continue to walk in that? Why would we continue to, to hold on to those things and say, nope, I'm not, I'm not going to give those up. I'm not going to call it sin. I'm not going to talk to you about it. 
Last week, I was uh, talking to a good friend of mine, and I was, uh, I was complaining about some things in my life that I do not like. Um, and and I, was, I was telling him that I thought that the Lord had done me wrong in some areas. And he said, you know, I get the sense that you haven't actually talked to him about this. Why wouldn't I have? Well, I don't think he can handle it, frankly. Let me tell you what I mean. Many of us have, if you write, I mean, if you were to record your prayers or write down a prayer journal, many of us have prayers that are filled with, fix me this way. Here's something that I'm bad at. Here's something that I feel terrible about myself. Here's something that I did wrong. Here's a situation that I don't like anymore. Fix this. Fix this. And it's a re, it's recitation of these, these imperfections that we want changed. But in those prayers, and in my lack of prayer, I don't know that we're actually talking to Jesus. I think we maybe are talking to some dumbed-down counselor version where he can give us really good advice about strategies to employ to get out of it or ways you can fix this on your own or communication methods that will fix the conflicts in your life. It's no wonder that sin is such a weight to us. If we're still bearing it and we're still saying, here's something that's wrong, tell me how to fix it. We're not actually talking to the rescuer of the world. You see, Scripture talks about sin in three ways. It talks about it as willful moral disobedience, things that I do that are wrong and and, uh, unloving to my neighbor and not loving to God. Absolutely. It also talks about it as this form of slavery that you and I exist under that uh, Luther called the bondage of the will, that I can't even choose right if I want to choose right. I'm not able to do that. So there's this slavery aspect. But it also talks about it as this kind of, the picture is like this, this hand like squeezing life out of the whole world and choking life out of the world. So it talks about it in all these different ways. But what, it all, what it's united on is that in each of those, the deliverer is Jesus. The rescue is Jesus. The one who, who fixes and covers and forgives is Jesus. Maybe we need to try calling it sin. I'm out of control. I can't solve this. I can't fill that quarry. And talking to Jesus about it. Talking to the, tr- the, the almighty God the master of this universe in which we find ourselves. Maybe that's why you don't give it up to him. Maybe that's why you and I want to hold on to them. But if you do, I think the hard thing is that you just, you lose control. That's a scary thing, right? If you, start, if you finally acknowledge, I'm in slavery and I can't fix it. If you acknowledge that, then you're, you're out of control. You don't get to be your own rescuer anymore. And you've given your life over to the one who has delivered you. If he's delivered you from all that, if that's who Jesus is, the one who has... Um, who has rescued you out of such a desperate situation, is there anything he can't ask of you now? 
That's a scary prospect. It's a scary prospect until we remember to whom we have been delivered. This is the God who moved heaven and earth in order to rescue you, in order to make provision for this sin. This is the God who has carried away your sin so that he could carry you away like a bride. This is the God who says to you, my love is bigger than this hole that you've opened up. And I will pour my life into that hole to fill it up and to solve this problem. And he's also the one who meets you in this meal that we're about to partake. Because in this meal, we put our sin, we put this slavery, we put our active disobedience, we put them into his wounded hands. And we receive his deliverance again.